Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans, and sometimes their family members. And as in this case, sometimes their spouses. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today's case is a doozy. And I remember this case from the 90s. I was really young, but I still remember it. And I had no clue that I'd be able to cover this case on Military Murder, the infamous edition. Until my friend Simone, who has a podcast called 90s Crime Time, she covered this story on her Instagram page. And she does a new story. I think she's still doing a new story on her Instagram page every day or maybe every few days. And wouldn't you know it, John Wayne Bobbitt is an ex-Marine. So I was like, "Uh, yes, I got to cover that case. And here I am. Oh, During this episode, my male listeners will be grabbing their junk, looking over at their significant other and thinking, could they do something like this? And the True Crime Army ladies will be thinking, oh, he must have made her really mad. Well, today I am going to tell you the story of Lorena Bobbitt, an abused woman who lived under the thumb of her husband, ex-United States Marine John Wayne Bobbitt before she committed a man's worst nightmare. She sliced off his penis while he slept. Ouch! Now, let's dig in. I know you guys already hear a warning, a content warning at the beginning of this episode, but I just want to give another warning right now because this episode does contain trigger warnings for rape, sex assault, and domestic violence. So if that is something that you cannot handle, then I would just suggest listening to a different episode of Military Murder. Thank you. My sources for this episode include the four-episode docu-series on Amazon called Lorena and articles by Inside Edition, TheCut.com, The New York Times, and Vanity Fair. Lorena Gallo was born in 1969 in Ecuador, And when she was seven years old, her family actually uprooted the family from Ecuador and they moved to Venezuela, where she continued to live and where she grew up. In the Latin culture, when young girls turn 15 years old, they have a coming of age party called a quinceañera. It's a party that many parents actually spend a small fortune to allow their princesses to have the party of a lifetime. It is, after all, a party to show a girl's passage from girlhood into womanhood. Well, Lorena's parents couldn't afford the type of extravagant party that Latin girls are used to. So Lorena said, don't worry, I don't need a party. The only thing that I want, the only thing that I want is a trip to the United States. So hold on a second. I kind of chuckled a little bit when I was reading this, when I was doing research on this case. And she actually mentioned this in the docuseries. But I was like, girl, a trip to the United States, that could be pretty costly as well. But the family agreed and Lorena visited the United States when she was 16 years old. 
she visited Washington, D.C. in the spring, and it was during cherry blossom season. And the minute, the minute that her feet hit American soil, she thought, wow, this is it. This is why people from my country have the American dream. This place is wonderful. Lorena returned to the United States when she was 18 years old, and she chose Virginia. She chose Virginia because she actually had family in the local area. And she was here in the U.S. because she had a student visa. So her plan was to get an American education and then maybe stay in the U.S. She didn't speak a lick of English. And little by little, she actually learned by watching soap operas and game shows. And that actually isn't very uncommon when people immigrate to the United States. When Lorena was 19 years old, one of her friends invited her to the Marine Ball that was being held at the Quantico Marine Base that fall. And Lorena was like, all right, cool, I'll go. It was at this ball that she would meet a 21-year-old Lance Corporal named John Wayne Bobbitt. He asked her to dance and she agreed. Her English wasn't the best, but they made it work and they exchanged numbers and soon began going on chaperone dates. And within a year, against everyone's recommendation, on June 18th, 1989, they got married. She wore this typical 90s puffy-sleeved wedding dress and her bangs were, were teased. And he looked really handsome in his Marine uniform. I mean, Marines always look pretty handsome in their uniforms. And she was 20 and he was only 22. Now, John didn't have a great upbringing. So let me just talk about that. His dad was abusive and eventually he left the family. John's mom, she couldn't handle being alone with the kids. So one day she dropped them off with a family member and then she left. She would show up occasionally, but she wasn't always there. The kids, they were beat up and molested and life just about sucked, you know? Well, John was a really good athlete. And in high school, he was on the varsity team and he was a triathlete. And after he joined the Marines, he was extremely fit. And according to the Amazon documentary, he finished first in all of the Marine competitions. He was a good looking Marine and he fancied himself Jean-Claude Van Damme, which he actually does or did look a lot like him back then. At the time of Lorena and John's wedding, there was no indication that trouble lay ahead. But that would soon change as John soon became physically, verbally and sexually abusive towards Lorena. It kind of reminds me of the episode that I covered on John Battaglia, which is episode nine. He was a perfect gentleman in the beginning. And the minute he put a ring on it, he completely changed. In this case, the first time that he hit Lorena was about a month after they were married. They were driving home from a club and he was driving and he had been drinking. So he was swerving, zigzagging all over the place. Lorena got scared and she tried to grab the steering wheel. And just then John punched her in the chest. In the documentary, Lorena described that John's brother was in the back seat and he just kind of shrugged it off like, yeah, you deserve that. When they got home, John was pissed. He grabbed her by the arm and pulled her up through the house. There must have been some sort of commotion, clearly, you know, because the cops showed up at the house and it was the 90s. So the cops didn't do much. And Lorena was like, fine, I will leave. She jumped in her car and she drove to her job where she slept in her car in the parking lot. And that actually became a pretty routine thing. Lorena sleeping in her car. When the pair got married, John was in the Marines, as I mentioned earlier, and they had dual income and they were living comfortably. They were young, but they purchased a house in Manassas, Virginia. But John soon completed his military service and separated honorably. 
after he left the Marine Corps, he couldn't maintain a job. He would work a few weeks here, a few weeks there, and then he'd just sit at home bumming it. And this was the opposite of Lorena. She wanted to make something of herself. She had this huge American dream. They went from having two incomes to soon Lorena was the only breadwinner and she didn't make a ton of money. At some point, she was like a manicurist at a nail salon. Within a year of the marriage, Lorena got pregnant and she was so happy, over the moon in fact. She had always wanted to be a mother and she naively thought that having a child would change everything in their relationship, but for the better. When she told John about the pregnancy, John was pissed. He began to verbally abuse her, telling her that she'd make a terrible mother. And then he gave her an ultimatum. Listen, it's me or the baby, but you can't have both. Lorena was rightfully shocked. I mean, this is different than in Latin culture, where babies are considered such a blessing, especially if the couple is already married. Lorena didn't know what to do, but she didn't want to lose her husband, even though he was this lame loser. So she went through with an abortion against her will, and she didn't understand how her life had gotten this bad. And after this, the verbal, physical, and sexual abuse got worse. John would tell Lorena that she was a piece of shit, that she was an immigrant, that she owed everything to him because he could easily hold her immigration paperwork and have her deported immediately. He told her she was worthless, and soon Lorena began to believe it. But deep down inside, she didn't want to give up on her own American dream. Well, in March of 1992, after months of not being able to make ends meet, the house that they purchased when they first got married, that house got foreclosed on, and the pair, they moved into the Manor Wood Park Apartments in Manassas. And this would become the scene of the crime. In mid-June 1993, it's unclear if John or Lorena initiated divorce discussions, but Lorena had made up her mind that she was leaving John. At that time, one of John's friends, Robbie, was staying with the couple. Well, on June 21st, 1993, Lorena attempted to file a restraining order against John. In the restraining order, she actually described the worst incident of physical abuse was, quote, kicking in the stomach and hitting with fists on the back, arms and legs, grabbing from the back and forced sex, even when she couldn't breathe, end quote. Well, at the station, they told her to come back because the secretary was out. And so Lorena left. Lorena told John that she was moving out and she moved her clothes and belongings to a friend's house who lived in the same apartment complex. But for whatever reason, she decided to continue sleeping at the house with John. On June 22, 1994, Lorena worked her normal job at the nail salon. She was a nail technician, as I mentioned earlier, doing manicures and pedicures. Well, John called her at work. He wanted to know what time she was getting home. And she said, hey, I'll be home regular time around 8 p.m. Well, Johnny and Robbie decided to go out drinking that night. And John had roughly five beers and two shots. But he says or said he wasn't drunk. They got home around 3 a.m. By this point, Lorena had gotten back from work and she was in bed sleeping. Although she had been startled by the front door slamming when the guys walked in, you know, causing a ruckus as drunk people normally do, she quickly went back to sleep. Later, Lorena was awakened by John trying to pull her underwear down. She told him no, but he held her down by pinning her arm down by her side, pushing his shoulder into her face and basically, in essence, covering her nose and mouth until she couldn't even tell him no. 
This was all while he thrust his penis inside her. There was nothing she could do. When he was done, he rolled over and fell asleep. Lorena described going numb and feeling like a zombie. She walked to the kitchen to get a glass of water to calm herself down. She was drinking this water and the only light in the kitchen was the refrigerator light. The light illuminated the knife block. So she grabbed a seven inch carving knife, although some news reports say that it's eight inches. And just then her thoughts were flooded with flashbacks to the first time that John raped her. Every single time that he forced anal sex on her, every single put down that he ever made to her, every single time that he told her she was just an immigrant. And then her mind went blank. The next thing that Lorena remembered was being in her car driving. She had a knife in one hand and a penis in the other, and she was hysterical. She was having a hard time holding the steering wheel with her hands full, so she opened the car window, and instead of flinging the penis out the window straight, she tossed the penis over the car so that it landed in a grassy knoll on the passenger side of the car, and she continued to speed down the road. Then she went to the strip mall where her job was located, and she let out this ravaged scream as she realized what she had just done. She threw the carving knife into the trash. She entered the building and then she remembered feeling peace. John said and continues to say to this day, he never abused Lorena, that he never abused her verbally, physically or sexually. And on this particular night, he couldn't even remember if they had sex. What he did remember was that at some point he leaned over and touched Lorena and then he went back to sleep. While he was sleeping, Lorena kept trying to talk to him, but he was dead ass tired. He couldn't even keep his eyes open. And then, according to John, Lorena started playing with his penis, kind of trying to get him aroused. He continued to sleep, and then he felt a pull and a tug, and then immense pain. And he described the pain as horrifying, terrifying, and he actually thought that he was dreaming. He sat there for a while, long after Lorena left with his penis in her hand. And it's evidence that he stood there for a while because there's a picture of a pool of blood in the center of the bed. And a police officer described that the pool of blood was about one inch deep. That's a lot of blood. Eventually, John pulled himself out of the bed and told his friend Robbie what happened and said, I need to go to the hospital right now. And his friend Robbie, I don't think he quite understood it because he was still recovering from a night on the town. And he was like, "Okay, okay, cool. I'll take you to the hospital, but let me brush my teeth. Now, it's unclear if there was a 911 call or if John just showed up at the hospital. But soon the police dispatcher was trying to communicate to the police officers on call that night that a man had just had his penis cut off and they needed to go to the apartment to find it. But it was funny because they couldn't or wouldn't say penis over the speaker, over the, the, the radio, because it was the 90s. But really, the dispatcher says that she didn't want to use the word penis because the operator didn't want to cause alarm. And she knew that the media was listening and they wanted to keep this low key, at least for now. 
By the time John arrived at the hospital, he had lost a lot of blood. The on-call surgeon got the call. There was a man whose penis was severed. And the doctor was like, what in the hell? Find a penis! Meanwhile, police were at the apartment trying to rummage through a crime scene without disturbing anything. But they're trying to find this penis. They were looking through the trash, in the garbage disposal, the fridge, the freezer, the dishwasher, and the penis was MIA. A crime scene tech arrived on scene to help, and she noticed little blood droplets in the parking lot and then leading up the stairs all the way up to the apartment. She started hearing that they thought the wife had swallowed the penis, and she was in disbelief. Then, miraculously, Lorena walked into the police station, but she wasn't carrying a penis, and she wasn't there to turn herself in. She was there to report John for abuse. Now, listen, I found this part in the documentary to be a bit comical, but also slightly devastating. The intake officer was like, oh, okay, cool. I got it. You want to report abuse, but um, yeah, can you tell me where the penis is? And Lorena was dumbfounded. She was like, what in the world? I don't know where I threw it, but I threw it. I think it might have been near. Uh, yeah, OK. I threw it by a 7-Eleven. And then she actually described the direction she was driving in and the direction that she threw it. Now, police quickly made their way to that 7-Eleven and they were walking around fighting crime, you know, looking for a penis in a grassy knoll by the popular Slurpee shop. And I can only imagine the cops right now thinking no one is ever going to believe this happened to me. Well, there was a small search team when one of the cops heard crunch. He stopped dead in his tracks and slowly backed up. When he looked down, there it was, John Wayne Bobbitt's schlong. He stepped on it. Now, listen, the penis was in good shape, so it's possible the cop didn't completely step on it. So the guy says he stepped on it. The doctor says that the penis was in good shape. So I don't know whether he stepped on it and it was hard or not. But Sergeant Willard Hurley was the man that saved the day by finding the penis. But he was extremely religious and he refused to handle or touch the penis, which I kind of giggle that because I'm like, it's a detached penis, for goodness sake. Pick the dang thing up. Nope. Oh, no, 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 no. He called over to Mike Perry, and this was a volunteer firefighter. And this guy was helping in the search. Well, that poor schmuck came on over and he knew that he was holding a man's dignity in his hands. And he'd be darned if he wasn't going to return some sort of dignity to John Wayne Bobbitt. Although in the back of his mind, he was probably thinking, what in the world did this man do to this woman to piss her off? Side note, Dr. Sane was interviewed by TheCut.com, ironically. And he said that the person who retrieved the penis waited around for a glove from the EMTs before he actually handled it. So just to make it clear that they did pick up the penis with a glove. Now, the cops called it in. <clears throat> um, we have the organ. And the on-call doctors, Dr. James Sane, the urologist, and Dr. David Berman, the microsurgeon, made their way quickly to the operating room to prep the patient. Meanwhile, back at the scene of the penis... <laughs> I mean, back at the scene of the crime, the quick thinking cops ran into the 7-Eleven, probably yelling, I have a penis. Give me some ice. 
And all the men in the 7-Eleven were all hands on deck, running around trying to get some ice. One of them grabbed a hot dog bag, threw some ice in it, and the cops put the penis on the ice. Then they raced the clock to the hospital with their sirens blazing. I'm assuming. So here we are. Lorena is at the police station reporting an abusive husband. The cops were racing the clock to get this penis to the hospital. And John Wayne Bobbitt, believe it or not, he had lost one third of his blood and the doctors were in the OR waiting for the penis. As the doctors looked at the incision that Lorena made, they wondered if she was a medical student because it was a clean cut. You can tell she had no hesitation with that knife. Now, guys, I'm not much of a prude. I mean, here I am talking on my podcast about a penis. But imagine my disbelief when they show a picture of the severed penis on the documentary. And then they show a picture of John Wayne's lower body without the penis. Listen, oh my God, I don't have a penis and I got weak in the knees when I saw those pictures. Yep, I'm sure that these images are on the internet, but come on, I was utterly shocked. The surgery lasted about nine hours and the doctors described attaching the penis. And as soon as it was all connected with blood pumping, the penis like perked up. Now imagine this. During John's surgery, the cops who responded to the crime scene and those who helped find the penis, they waited in the hospital waiting area to ensure that the penis was fine. (laughs) Now listen, all joking aside, I commend cops for what they do. In some situations, some friends and family members wouldn't even be out there looking for your penis if it was cut off. But these men and women, cops, they respond to the call of duty, no matter what that call is. And you can have whatever belief you want about the bad apples. And I get it. There's bad apples in every organization, in every group. But the majority of cops, good people. So my hat's off to them and let's be kind. Lorena was sent to get a rape kit and she met with a police officer. The statement that she made to the police officer while she was still under the stress of everything would be, in my personal opinion, one of the most damning pieces of evidence against her. The detective who interviewed her was Peter Wentz. And when he asked her what happened, she said, quote, I was angry already and I turned my back and the first thing I saw was a knife. Then I said, I asked him if he was satisfied with what he did and he just half asleep or something. He always have orgasm and he doesn't wait for me to have an orgasm. He's selfish. I don't think it's fair. So I pulled back his shirt or the sheets and then I did it. End quote. Dang, girl, you're right. He is selfish. (laughs) Just kidding. But that's exactly what she said. And that statement would eventually come out in court. Well, James Lowe, Lorena's defense attorney, tried to mend the statement by saying, no, 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 that's not what she meant. But that sure is what she said, and it wasn't good. Two months after the cutting incident, Lorena was charged with malicious wounding. In the meantime, Lorena was out telling her story, and she gave her first exclusive interview to Vanity Fair. And in the article, she described the abuse that she endured at the hands of her husband, the ex-Marine turned deadbeat husband. Now, listen, the prosecutor heard about the allegations against John, about him being abusive, but they went in one ear and out the other. It wasn't until a woman's activist group got wind about this abuse 
And they got pissed and they lobbied and lobbied and lobbied until the district attorney, Paul Ebert, eventually brought charges against John Wayne Bobbitt. He was charged with marital sexual abuse. Now, America was already interested in this case. A woman cut her husband's penis off. Now that's entertaining TV. But now the victim was also charged with a crime. Oh, snap. Janet, grab the popcorn. This is going to be some damn good TV. And listen, I would skip the Jersey Shore family reunion to watch this court. Guys, if you didn't know this about me, before I became obsessed with true crime and snapped in 2009-ish timeframe, I was obsessed with the Jersey Shore. It's a show on MTV. And I still am kind of obsessed with it to this day. All my really smart friends would ask me, why do you watch that trash? And I would quickly tell them, hey, you watch your mouth. The Jersey Shore keeps it classy, okay? Now, the district attorney, he's a funny guy. He, you can tell he's a good guy. Due to this trial, for almost a decade, he became known as the penis prosecutor, which is hilarious. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself sometimes, you know? He eventually, though, this guy, the prosecutor, eventually prosecuted the D.C. snipers. So, so that case soon overshadowed this case. And don't worry, the D.C. sniper case is a case that I plan on covering. But all in due time, my true crime army, all in due time. The trial dates were set for the two cases. John would be tried first and Lorena second. Reporters all over the world. Yes, all over the world. They came out in herds to be at the Manassas courthouse. His trial began in November of 1993. And in order to convict him for the marital rape case, the jury had to find the following two elements. One, that the couple was separated at the time and two, that the spouse was permanently injured. That means if a couple was still together, a spouse couldn't be charged with spousal rape. And also, John faced 20 years in jail. Well, there were various occasions of domestic abuse, but the judge at John's trial didn't let any of it in, not a lick. The only thing that he allowed was for Lorena to discuss anything that occurred in the five days leading up to the slicing. And this really decapitated, no pun intended, Lorena's argument because as we all are well aware, somewhat well aware, an abusive relationship can go on for years and then suddenly go through a lull in the abuse before the spouse snaps. But those were the parameters of this trial, of John's trial. Well, it just so happened that leading up to the slicing event, Lorena was anally raped by her husband. But a few days after she was raped, she had consensual sex with her husband. And I don't think that the jury really liked that fact. They weren't keen on it. And they probably thought, why in the hell would a woman who says she was raped have sex with her perpetrator a few days later? Well, Lorena had a perfectly good explanation for that. Lorena explained that she had consensual sex with him because she knew if she didn't agree, he'd rape her anyway, and then it would hurt. So she just went along with it. Well, on November 11th, the jury that was made up of nine women and three men, they deliberated for four hours before finding John Wayne Bobbitt not guilty. And John breathed a sigh of relief. After trial, John was sent to a ranch near Colorado Springs to kind of lay low until the next trial. And it was Lorena's trial on malicious wounding. Well, during his stint in Colorado herding cows, he started attending John Wayne Bobbitt lookalike contest at the local Hooters. 
He even became buddy-buddy with Howard Stern, and Howard even threw a phone-a-thon for John for the New Year's of 1994. And this was, what, like six months after the slicing because it happened um, towards the tail end of June, I think it was. Well, you can actually watch portions of the phone-a-thon on the documentary. And there is John with this giant, fake, erect penis meter behind him. You got to watch the documentary. Anyway, Howard Stern raised close to $200,000 for John Wayne Bobbitt. And they actually said that they were raising this money to pay off his medical bills. But you'll hear later, he doesn't ever actually pay those. John even had t-shirts made. On the front, it said, quote, severed parts, end quote. And on the back, it said, love hurts. And I read an article that mentioned that John actually tried his hand at a band that was called Severed Parts, but I didn't look into that too much. In the background of John's life, Lorena was pending trial. The prosecutor offered her a plea deal, but she said, no way. And she turned it down. She didn't want to risk the possibility of a conviction and then lose the possibility of becoming an American citizen. Lorena's trial began in January of 94. And unlike John's trial, which wasn't publicized because it was considered a sex crime, this trial was shown live on court TV. Another thing that was different in the first trial, the judge said, can't talk about anything outside the five days before the incident. Well, this was Lorena's trial now, and the judge allowed every single incident of abuse, saying everything is fair game. And it was evident from the train of witnesses that the defense attorney trotted into the courtroom that various people had witnessed either John physically assaulting Lorena or they witnessed the aftermath, which included bruising and crying and everything else that goes with that. John took the stand and he just lied his pants off. According to him, he had pushed Lorena around, but he never, never, ever laid a finger on her. This, of course, was all opposed by police reports and pictures of a bruised Lorena. Specifically, an assault and battery conviction dated February 21st, 1991, to which John pled guilty. But the government had a witness that I personally thought was not a good witness for Lorena. Well, maybe. Lorena was a nail technician. And us ladies, we know that the nail salon and the hair salon, that's where we go to talk crap. We talk crap up the wazoo when we're there. Well, one day, Lorena and her coworkers, a bunch of ladies, they were having a discussion. And the discussion was something to the effect of, oh, my God, what would you do if your husband cheated on you? And one lady opined, I would kill that SOB. And another lady said, I'd leave him and I'd take everything. I'd make him regret the day he met me. What about you, Lorena? To which Lorena responded with, quote, I would cut his dick off because that would hurt more, end quote. Gulp. That isn't good for her case. Then there was also a witness who described Lorena physically abusing John. That also wasn't good. But then there were a group of two or three guys that were John's friends. And they described that John was always bragging about making women squirm during sex. And he enjoyed that he said that he enjoyed making them bleed and yell for help. He also told his buddies that he enjoyed forced sex because it really aroused him. Well, it was evident. Yes, Lorena cut off her husband's penis. So this was kind of an easy case, open and shut, right? Well, not so fast. 
Lorena didn't plead not guilty. She pled not guilty by reason of irresistible impulse, which is kind of like an insanity plea. Basically, she was saying that she did it, but she said she was so overcome with emotions that she didn't have the mental clarity to stop herself. Lorena's forensic psych, Dr. Susan Feister, she said that Lorena was experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression disorder, and panic disorder. And she had zero control. She had no control of her actions. In that moment, she, quote, became psychotic and attacked the instrument of her torture. And that was her husband's penis, end quote. Then in mid-trial, the state's forensic psych tended to agree with the defense's psych. The government psych or the prosecutor's psych was Dr. Miller Ryan's. He's changed his tune and admitted that Lorena was in fact suffering from PTSD. The jury deliberated and they returned a not guilty verdict by reason of irresistible impulse. So even though the jury believed Lorena that she had been abused, she still did what she did. So after trial, she was whisked away and taken to a mental institution for 45 days. Lorena described those days as very tough, but she opened up and said that those 45 days, those days allowed her to discuss openly with her therapist the experiences that she had went through and that talking about it actually helped her heal little by little. For me, it was amazing because the documentary showed a picture of Lorena or they showed a video of Lorena before she went into the mental health institution. And then it showed her talking to reporters after she was released the 45 days and her demeanor and appearance drastically changed. She looked like a new refreshed woman, like she was ready to start her life again. After the courtroom drama, John Wayne Bobbitt was a household name and he was getting paid big bucks for appearances and whatnot. And he became a regular on the Howard Stern show. Well, everyone was eager to see his reattached penis. Was it working? What did it look like? So he did the next logical thing. You know, he starred in a porno called John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut. Although John was making money, he was like rolling in dough. He was so bad with it that he filed for bankruptcy soon after his trial. And his attorney, the one that helped get him acquitted, was never paid. And the hospital, you know, the hospital that helped him regain his dignity, well, they were never paid either. And the John Wayne Bobbitt saga didn't end there. A few years later, he spent 60 days in jail for abusing a different woman. Then he became an ordained minister to perform quickie marriages. Oh, and get this, a penis extension. Ugh, this guy. Well, he kept pushing his luck and the doctor who performed his penis extension failed to tell him that he was actually pending lawsuits for all of the crappy penal extensions that he had performed. And well, John was pissed because his once functioning reattached penis was now all terrible and deformed looking. He did go on to make another porno after the enhancement, and that was called John Wayne Bobbitt's Frankenpenis. <laughs> oh, this guy's crazy. Well, Dr. Bierman, the doctor who performed emergency surgery on John all those years back, was pissed when he heard about the penis extension, and he had something to say about it. In not so many words, now this is just Marco making up or ad-libbing here what, uh, what, what dear old Dr. Berman said. He basically said, you ruined my penis. <laughs> he didn't really say that, but he was pretty, he was pretty pissed. Like, why would you even go under the knife again after that? 
through the years, John was just a terrible person. According to Inside Edition, in 1994, just a year after the trials, he was convicted of domestic battery for abusing a girlfriend. And in 99, he pled guilty to a felony charge of attempted grand larceny for stealing close to $150,000 worth of clothes from a store. And the documentary actually goes into this. So what he did was he stole the clothes from one store. It was like a chain store. First of all, I don't even know how you can steal $150,000. I mean, you'd have to steal the whole freaking store. I don't know. Maybe that's just because I like to shop at Target and Walmart. But he stole $150,000 worth of clothes and then from a chain. And then he tried to return it to another branch from that same chain. And they were catching on or they caught on. Well, while he was pending charges for that case or the, the, the theft or the grand larceny or attempted grand larceny, he ran off with a brothel girl. Well, once he was in New York, he got angry with his new girl. She was only 19 years old. And over the course of three days, he tied her to the bed, tortured her and raped her over and over again. On November 2nd, 1999, he was charged and convicted for the crime. And I think that he was charged with harassment, but it was everything's a little bit jumbled with regards to everything that happened to him after the Lorena Bobbitt stuff. Well, John eventually did remarry, and in the early 2000s, he had three incidents with that wife. During the first incident, he was convicted of battery and sentenced to 15 months in jail. And the following two times, he got lucky again, and he was acquitted of domestic battery. According to thesun.com, he got into some sort of car accident in 2014 and broke his neck. And he now lives in Nevada, living off of his disability checks. After the ordeal, Lorena went back to college and she met a man named David. They were friends at first and then they began to date and they eventually got married. Although a lot of news reports actually say that David is just kind of like a life partner. So they're either married or they're just together forever. In any event, they went on to have a daughter and Lorena now helps women who are in the same position as she was decades ago, abused and afraid. John, even after he got his penis cut off, he continued to contact Lorena. He told her that he still loved her, that she was a good woman, that they should get back together, that they could make a lot of money if they had a baby together, that type of stuff. Oh, he's so pathetic. And Lorena was like, dude, I cut your penis off. I'm not sure what else I need to do to show you that I want nothing to do with you. And Lorena, she did what she did, but she was a classy or still is a classy lady. In the 90s, she was offered $1 million to pose for Playboy. And she was like, "Um, go scratch. You go, girl. Lorena, of course, does not go by Lorena Baba anymore. She goes by her maiden name, Lorena Gallo. Lorena founded the Lorena Gallo Foundation, which is a nonprofit that helps domestic violence survivors. I decided to research a few facts about domestic abuse in the United States. And here are those facts, because... You know, this is, after all, a case on domestic violence, sexual abuse. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline and the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, on average, 20 plus people per minute are victims of rape, physical violence or stalking by an intimate partner. Nearly three in 10 women and one in 10 men experience rape, violence and or stalking by an intimate partner. 
one in four women and one in seven men over the age of 18 have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner. Female ages 18 to 34 generally experience the highest rates of intimate partner violence. And the most shocking statistic is that nearly half of all men and women, half of all men and women, have experienced some form of psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Another fact that I found was that the most volatile time for a domestic violence victim is when she is leaving a relationship and the six months after she has left. So this, this right here, this is why victims need to have a safety plan in place. And I say that she, because women are victims of domestic violence at a higher rate than men, but I understand that men are also victims. Now guys, I joked around a lot in this episode, but this is a very serious topic. And that's at the end of the day, what Lorena Gallo wanted to get out, especially in her documentary. And I read lots of articles where she was talking to folks about the entire ordeal from, you know, decades ago. And after doing this episode or researching it, I came up with a new true crime army rule. And it's, you know, it's just as simple as my number one rule. And I know that you know, my number one true crime army rule is that uh, divorce is always better than murder. Are you ready for my new one? Here it is. Keep your goddamn hands to yourself. Don't hit people. That includes women, men, small children, elderly folks. Okay. And also keep the animals out of it. They didn't do anything to you. That's it. That's my new true crime army rule. Keep your damn hands to yourself. Also, I have another one. <laughs> As it refers to sex, if the person that you want to have sex with isn't telling you that they want to have sex, they probably don't want to have sex with you. So go grab some lotion and take care of yourself. It's that simple. Okay? All right. I know everyone who preaching to the crier here, but really guys, isn't this these are these are crazy simple, simplistic true crime army rules like keep your goddamn hands to yourself and also not everybody wants to have sex with you. If you or anyone you know needs help or advice, there are resources for you. Please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That is 1-800-799-7233. Guys, listen, if you didn't already know that I love doing this podcast for you, this episode for sure should prove it. I was up late at night and that's usually because that's usually when I have time to, to work on this podcast. And I was sitting there wondering, hmm, I wonder what the deal is with these uh, these penis amputations. And so I Googled it. See, originally when I was doing all the research for the Lorena Bobbitt case, I just Googled Lorena Bobbitt and everything came up. But then I, then I Googled penis amputations and I came across a men's health article titled, quote, this dangerous habit could leave you with an amputated penis. Stop putting your dick inside tiny constricting objects, end quote. And well, of course, I read the article and I was like, why? Why? Why did I just read that? Stay tuned after the credits when you hear my daughter say, shh, mama's working on her podcast. And just stick around because I have a few quick stories about other wives who cut their husband's penises off and it doesn't quite meet the military 
you know, the military aspect of it. But I did want to want to tell you about these other wives who are doing this because apparently this is a thing. Now, I also will link that story about men's health, but I'm not going to talk about it because I thought it was silly. Just guys, guys do weird things. I don't know. All right. You can find me on social, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, on Facebook at Military True Crime, and on Twitter at Military Murder. And I would suggest now that we're all kind of stuck at home, go and follow me on one or all of those social media accounts. Everyone who uh, follows me there, they know that if they interact with me, if they leave a comment or if they send me an email, I'm pretty quick to respond for the most part. All right. This show was created and produced by Mama Margot Productions and the music was created by TyOps. Please check the show notes for a direct link to my sources page on my website, militarymurderpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. <laughs> Shh, let's work on another podcast. All right. Thanks for sticking around after the credits. This is where this is where the craziness happens. OK, so one of the doctors that helped to reattach John Wayne Bobbitt's penis, he recently did an interview with thecut.com and it was Dr. Sane, the urologist. During that interview, he said something that piqued my interest. Apparently, back in the 70s in Thailand, women had lost their minds. <laughs> Maybe not. And when these women found out that their husbands were unfaithful, they'd wait until the husband was asleep and then they'd cut their penises off with a kitchen knife and throw the penis out the window. Now, listen, the thing with them throwing a penis out the window was that in the 70s, I don't know what Thailand looks now, and I'm only saying this because I did a little bit of research, so I know nothing. But uh, in the 70s in Thailand, the houses were on, on these kind of elevated, like stilts, you know, and under the house, they that's where they would keep their livestock, their pigs, their chickens, their ducks and all their other animals. Well, once a penis was thrown out the windows, the ducks would waddle on over and gulp chew it up or swallow it. And well, it's difficult to reattach a deformed penis. And according to theguardian.com, most of these cases occurred after a few things. One, the couple endured a financial crisis. Two, after the husband had taken drugs or was highly intoxicated. And three, when the wife experienced public humiliation after discovering that her husband was practically a philandering pig. Yikes! So men, be careful. The 70s was not all that long ago. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, I want to point out two hilarious comments for that Guardian article that I read about. One man, he was mocking the whole content of the article, like why in the hell would someone write this? So he wrote, quote, well, I'm glad that question has now finally been answered. No longer will I lay awake at night pondering it, end quote. To which another man hilariously responded, quote, I'm going to lay awake at night still just to be sure, end quote. <laughs> All right, so we just covered the Lorena Bobbitt case. Well, there were two more recent U.S. cases about wives who cut their husband's penises off. And here are those stories very, very briefly. Guys, this is like a bonus to the bonus episode, right? <laughs> in California in 2011, a 48-year-old woman named Catherine Becker and her 51-year-old husband were going through a divorce. Two months before the incident, the man, the husband, he filed for a divorce, but they continued to live together because the husband didn't want to put her out and he felt bad she didn't have a whole lot of money. 
Well, in early July, Catherine cooked dinner and she poisoned the dinner with Ambien. She waited until he was knocked out and then she got him on the bed or maybe that's where he passed out. She tied his hands to the bed. Then she waited until he came to because remember, he was knocked out with the Ambien. Well, she waited until he woke up on his own. Then she grabbed his penis and cut it off with a 10-inch kitchen knife while he watched. Then she ran to the kitchen and threw it down the garbage disposal. What? But wait, she's so cray. She is so cray that she caught the entire thing on film. Immediately after the assault, the husband was listed in critical condition, of course, but he did end up surviving. However, Because she had thrown the penis down the garbage disposal, reconstructive surgery was not successful. Now that's a crazy bee. In 2013, according to NBC News LA, Becker was convicted of aggravated mayhem, maliciously depriving a human of a body part and torture. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. And she has to serve seven years before she's eligible for parole. So that means that now she's eligible for parole. So I don't know if they let her out or or anything like that. I just, I don't know. Okay, so here's another one for you. Earlier than this, in 2005, in Anchorage, Alaska, Kim Tran, a 35-year-old woman, was secretly dating her aunt's husband. Yes, you heard that correctly. This lady, Kim, was dating her aunt's husband. He was a 44-year-old man. Well, Kim was pissed that her boo wouldn't leave his wife, a.k.a. her aunt. So she cut off his penis and flushed it down the toilet, and then she drove him to the hospital. According to the Chicago Tribune, a city wastewater utility worker, he went to the house, had to dislodge the toilet from the floor, and the penis was stuck, you know, in the S-curve of the toilet? where it like attaches to the ground, that's where the penis was stuck. So when they detached it, the penis just kind of like flopped out. And so they put it on ice and delivered it to the hospital. Now, this guy was luckier than the guy I just talked about a few seconds ago, and he had successful reconstructive surgery. Now, Kim was charged with assault and tampering with the evidence, but I couldn't find much information on the final verdict. So if you know, let me know, but I don't know what happened to this woman. Anyway. All joking aside, although it's funny, but not really, I was a little baffled by these stories that I found. I was like, what? So now that you guys are sufficiently freaked out, I'm going to sign off and say goodbye. Go check out that series on Lorena and I'll see you guys next week. Bye.